today on Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at the NYU Steinhardt School. On this episode, the role that music plays in presidential politics. A candidate doesn't want to be seen as a thief, doesn't want to be seen as a crook and a dishonest character, and doesn't want to create enemies among the voting public over their use of something as simple as a song. That was Ben Cesario, who covers music and culture for The New York Times. My conversation with Ben later this episode. Presidential campaigns have been using music as a vital tool to drive voters to the polls for almost the entire history of our republic. Over time, not only has the music that politicians use changed, but so have the ways in which they use it. In this episode, we'll take a look back at the history of presidential campaign music. We'll chat with Joel Schoenfeld, a veteran music industry lawyer now in private practice, and NYU professor of law Chris Sprigman about the legal ramifications for a politician using an artist's music without permission, and my conversation with Ben Cesario about the importance and impact of music in presidential campaigns. But first, let's hop into the Musonomics time machine and ride the gravitational waves all the way back to 1786. It was three years before George Washington's inauguration as the first president of the United States, and though there wasn't much in the way of a campaign to be run by Washington, there was still a need to rally the citizens of this new country around their new leader. A familiar tune rang out. That melody is, of course, God Save the King. But for Washington's first presidential campaign, the words were rewritten, with every mention of the king substituted for Washington. This was an early example of something that would become very common in early presidential campaign music, contrafacta, or songs whose lyrics have been rewritten while the melody remains intact. These types of songs served a great purpose as the melodies were already familiar to the electorate and therefore easier to learn. But God Save George Washington wasn't the only song sung by revolutionaries in support of their candidate. Follow Washington, a song used during the Revolutionary War by the Sons of Liberty, was resurrected for Washington's presidential campaign. With heart in hand and God, our trust will freely fight. Our cause is just march on, my lads. Lads, march on and follow Washington. The song served as a powerful way to connect the electorate and to get them to rally behind a singular candidate. It certainly served Washington well. But perhaps the most successful early musical campaign was run by the Whig Party in 1840. Tippecanoe and Tyler II was written to sing the praises of William Henry Harrison, the hero of Tippecanoe, and John Tyler. The song is another form of contrafacta, as it borrows its melody from the minstrelsy song Little Pigs. With 12 verses, the song is a bit longer than a modern pop song, but in 1840, 
Its teasing tenor and catchy hook defined it as a pop novelty song, in contrast to the seriousness of other campaign songs of the time. While singing the praises of Harrison and Tyler, Tippy Canoe and Tyler, too, also poked fun at incumbent Martin Van Buren and his supporters. William Henry Harrison went on to defeat Van Buren, and Tippy Canoe and Tyler, too, went on to establish song as a vital American presidential campaign tool. We'll now fast forward nearly a century to the 1932 Democratic National Convention. With the crowd waiting, Judge John Mack stepped up to the microphone to introduce Franklin Delano Roosevelt and laid an egg. His introduction speech was boring, bland, and altogether uninspiring. As he finished up, the original song chosen for the campaign, Anchors Away, played over the loudspeakers. But the flop of an introductory speech left something to be desired. Roosevelt and his advisors demanded a new song be played before he would come out to give his acceptance speech, and they selected Happy Days Are Here Again from the 1930 musical Chasing Rainbows. Although this doesn't seem like a terribly energetic song to us here in 2016, back in 1932, this was an uplifting, raucous choice, and it became the de facto anthem of the Democratic Party for decades to come. Let us sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. Twenty years later, Irving Berlin wrote perhaps the most successful campaign song in history for General Dwight David Eisenhower in the very first TV spot for a presidential campaign animated by Walt Disney Studios. They Like Ike was first performed as part of the Irving Berlin musical Call Me Madam in 1950. It made its first official campaign appearance when a Broadway actor sang it in front of 15,000 people at a rally in Madison Square Garden. The song and accompanying campaign was so effective that after Eisenhower's first successful campaign, the song inspired two follow-ups, I Still Like Ike and Ike for Four More Years. At the end of his presidency, Eisenhower gave Irving Berlin a medal for his service in composing many popular songs. I Like Ike is at least partially responsible for making Eisenhower one of the most popular presidents ever. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid As of we approached country. the modern era, campaign jingles remained popular. In 1960, John F. Kennedy's campaign jingle was certainly catchy enough, though other modern jingles were more forgettable, like Nixon's 1972 campaign jingle, Nixon Now. But Ronald Reagan and the 80s brought about a new era in presidential campaign music, where unaltered pop music began to make its way into campaign ads and rallies. In 1984, Reagan ran a re-election campaign ad that featured this song, Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. 
It's possibly one of the more patriotic campaign songs of all time, tailor-made for a presidential run. But Reagan tried to use another song. Reagan's advisors tried to use Born in the USA, but were rebuffed by Bruce Springsteen. Despite that reaction, Reagan still put references to Springsteen in his speeches and tried to use the runaway popularity of the song. But of course, Born in the USA isn't a blindly patriotic song, and in fact carries a critical message about the plight of Vietnam veterans. Moreover, Springsteen's politics could not have been further from those of the conservative Reagan, yet Reagan continued to imply a Springsteen endorsement. That's a funny side of it where sometimes the candidates just misjudge the song. That's Ben Cesario from the New York Times. You know, if you if you really study that that song, there's there's nothing in there that should be useful for a political candidate. But it I think it does kind of say something about just how people relate to pop music that the hook is kind of the thing that people remember and associate with and that they will adapt those messages to whatever they feel. So, you know, in a way, while Reagan totally did misjudge what Born in the USA is all about, but I'll bet the people who were sitting there at his campaign events when he was using that, I'll bet they felt patriotic when they heard that song. We'll delve into the modern era of presidential campaign music with Ben Cesario when we come back. Sometimes candidates and their musical selections align politically like Bill Clinton's choice to use Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. The band not only approved Clinton's use of the song, but reunited for a performance at Clinton's inaugural ball. More recently, President Obama scored big when Stevie Wonder agreed to perform Signed, Sealed, Delivered on the final night of the Democratic Convention. However... Incidents where the recording artists that made the popular music having to ask or demand the candidates in their campaigns to stop using their music seem to happen more and more every election cycle. The Dropkick Murphys strongly asked Scott Walker, who was then a candidate last year, to stop using its music. R.E.M. famously complained about Donald Trump using its music. Neil Young also complained about Trump using Rockin' in the Free World, and then in October, Steven Tyler demanded that Trump stop using the Aerosmith song, Dream On. So, Ben Cesario, why do so many mostly Republican presidential candidates risk stirring up popular musicians who may have millions of fans and followers and who differ politically from the essence of the campaign? Well, one reason is that so much of the pop music that they're drawing on, so much of that music is, is done by musicians with left-leaning politics. So, you know, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or whether it's R.E.M., I mean, so many of the 
big pop songs that bring to mind some of those feelings that the the campaigns are trying to capture. I mean, so many of them are just by left-wing musicians. You know, when Donald Trump used R.E.M., It's the End of the World as We Know It, R.E.M. complained, but the Trump campaign said, hey, we got the permission to do this. And the permission that they got was they went to ASCAP, one of the two biggest performing rights organizations, and the same way that any radio station or TV channel does, it gives you permission to perform the compositions in that catalog in public. You know, as long as you pay the tithe to the organization that controls it, and in this case it was ASCAP, you're allowed to do it, and there actually is a specific political license. And then there's the argument that a politician using a song creates an implied endorsement between the artist and politician. If a political candidate uses the REM song, a, a voter would be hearing this and saying, this seems to imply to me that REM endorses this candidate. And that's the argument that REM made. That's the argument that David Byrne made a number of years ago. When these lawsuits are made, um, they're often settled. In the case of David Byrne, it was the campaign um, used a talking head song, Road to Nowhere, in a television ad in one market without permission. That's a real no-no. Charlie Crist, who was then the governor of Florida, who was running for the Senate, he had to make this kind of egg-on-his-face video apology for doing it, and there was a settlement. I sincerely apologize to David Byrne for using his famous song and his unique voice in my campaign advertisement without his permission. I pledge that, should there be any future election campaigns for me, I will respect and uphold the rights of artists and obtain permission or a license for the use of any copyrighted work. So how can a politician avoid the fate of Governor Christ? What exactly are the legal guidelines for using music in a political setting? How do you navigate the gray area? I don't believe there is any legal gray area. I think there's either grave misunderstanding by politicians and their staff, or I'm not sure what, but uh, I don't know of any cases with a direct use, uh, unauthorized use of music that have been sustained. They've either been settled or there's been an apology from the politician and they've dropped the use of the music. That's Joel Schoenfeld a veteran music industry lawyer now in private practice at Mitchell Silberberg in New York. There are certain areas where the usage is legal, so that's not a gray area, but why politicians, particularly presidential candidates, continue to do this, uh, I, I, I don't have a clue. I don't know. They, they always end up losing. There seems to be a long history now going back to 1984 and the Reagan campaign when we've had presidential candidates using music without full permission from all the parties that are involved up through last year where there have been a number of campaigns that have suffered the consequences in the court of social media where many of the artists have been complaining loudly about the misuse of their music. I, I think that's right. I think uh, it continues through this year, but I first want to go back and just say that Democrats have also got caught uh, misusing music. Barack Obama uh, was cited by both Cindy Lauper and Sam of Sam and Dave for unauthorized use of their music. So uh, it seems to be a bit bipartisan. Trump has gone into many stadiums this year to various music playing. And uh, in a stadium live, 
Usually the stadium, the venue, has a blanket license for the musical composition, so that's licensed use, and there is no right in that kind of use in, in the um, master recording. But if they showed the same thing on, for example, an online ad or on his website, there would have been significant issues both for the uh, musical composition copyright and the master recording copyright. Uh, there's also been an issue this year when uh, uh, Mr. Huckabee appeared at a rally outside a Kentucky courthouse when that infamous uh, clerk was released from jail and they played Eye of the Tiger. He is being sued, and so far his people have put into court a claim that that could not have been an uh, infringement because there's an exception for uh, religious gatherings, which he claims that was. Can you unpack for us what federal and state law says about the use of music in political campaigns, both for public performances at campaign rallies and separately for the use of music in radio, television, and Internet advertising? Let me start by saying that there is an inherent conflict between the First Amendment and the copyright law. Copyright law, you know, somewhat restricts the right to uh, use what is copyrighted, and uh, the First Amendment says you have a right to speak. The courts have always said that the copyright law has internally built in the protections of the First Amendment in that it's a limited monopoly and several other issues. So when politicians say it is either a First Amendment right or a right of political free speech to use the music, they have been uniformly defeated in that claim. The copyright law says you need authorization to uh, make use of music, essentially unless it's a few exceptions, including a religious gathering, uh, but more importantly, if you can raise a fair use defense. The fair use defense has failed every time, so fair use has not worked either. There's also been uh, claims by artists and writers who usually don't control their own copyrights. Usually it's a music publisher or a record company that does. But the artists themselves can claim a uh, false association or a false endorsement under the Lanham Act, which is, again, a federal law. There's a section of the Lanham Act, I believe it's 43, that says if a use is uh, likely to cause consumer confusion by creating a false uh, association with or endorsement by the individual, uh, it's a violation of that federal law. And with respect to the recent uses or alleged misuses of music by candidates, One need only go back to October and Steven Tyler's issues with the Trump campaign. Exactly, yes. Yeah, Trump is probably a little more litigious than some of the other candidates have been in the past. And even then, I think once consulting with lawyers and lawyers who review the cases, uh, they realize that, you know, the First Amendment simply doesn't trump issues with either the Lanham Act or the copyright law in these kinds of uses. However, as, as, as I mentioned and you also referred to, different uses have different laws that apply. There, there is no right in the master recording in analog uses or live uses. So uh, that comes up for the master rights holder only with online or digital uses. Venues tend to have blanket licenses from performance societies like ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. So usually the composition is licensed. If there's a band or someone playing the music, not a replay of the master, uh, you're only dealing with the musical composition in those venues, and that is already under a blanket license. So they're variables, but in the end, I've never seen a challenge that either went all the way through final judgment 
or which did not end up in a settlement where the candidate drew the use, perhaps apologized, and who knows what else in these confidential settlements. Joel, is there a path forward to make the law more transparent in order for political campaigns to be fully litigation-proof when they use popular music? Again, I don't think there's any lack of clarity. I have spoken to people on some campaign staffs who know exactly what has to be done and not be done. Why this practice persists is is still a question that I can only guess at. I have no basis for the answer. Perhaps it's the uh, undeniable urge to be associated with a popular artist. Perhaps it's the uh, the need to be uh, sued by an, an artist to show that you're on the opposite side of their political fence. And there's the hubris and ego involved and thinking you can use this because I'm running for president or this is political free speech. But there's no shortage of articles and commentary and uh, lawyers who can tell anyone who asks for the advice that you need to get a license from the music publisher for the musical composition or be in a place that has a blanket license. You need to get a license from the master recording on the record label. If you're going to play back that master recording, you should probably get permission from the artist if you want to avoid these Lanham Act claims. That was Joel Schoenfeld. And here's Ben Cesario again. In one sense, what is happening here has to do with the complexity of music copyright, that there are many different kinds of copyright, there are many different kinds of uses, and we're seeing in the digital age how incredibly complicated that is. But it's not just a matter of complex copyrights and what exactly does the public performance license allow you to to use it at a campaign stop or not. It's not just a matter of the letter of the law. When things get to the level of presidential campaigns and media coverage of them, they're just at a very heated uh, level of public discourse and the symbolism of you know, the person who could become our next president using someone's song without their permission. It's a very serious issue, and it can be a really big problem. A candidate doesn't want to be seen as a thief, doesn't want to be seen as a crook and a dishonest character, and doesn't want to create enemies among the voting public over their use of something as simple as a song. And they don't want to have the the political liability, not just the legal and the financial liability, but the political liability of having a beloved figure get up in public and say to the country, hey, that guy is a thief. That's a very big political problem. And as you know, in a political campaign, the slightest misstep can ruin it. And I, I think in most cases, it's turned out badly for the candidates. I don't think you can say with any certainty that it cost Charlie Crisp the election, but I think it just was not good for his political fortunes to make a video looking into the camera and saying, gee willikers, I really shouldn't have used that talking head song. It was, it was my bad. I'm sorry. That's just not a good look for any you know, major political candidate. There is, however, another view. NYU law school professor Chris Brigman believes that politicians should have more freedoms to use popular music to help communicate their stances. You know, politicians have been using songs forever. So Andrew Jackson, Hunters of Kentucky, you know, in 1824, the the Whig Party uh, and Tippecanoe and Tyler II in 1840, John Tyler and William Henry Harrison, politicians used popular songs to send messages about what they stand for, what they at least claim to stand for. Um, often this is a very, very effective way to send that message because it 
it links to some form of artistic expression that people know and understand. And, you know, this is, I think, a pretty important thing for politicians to be able to do. I would note also that musicians tend to object to conservative politicians using their songs. Um, they object less to liberal ones. Now, occasionally they do, but most of the objections are to conservative politicians using their songs. So I think this is somewhat of a partisan issue. While I myself am not a partisan Republican, I, I do object to the idea that Republicans are somehow disabled in our political competition because musicians don't want them using their songs. Well, of course, not every musician objects. Kid Rock was happy to have the Romney campaign use one of his songs as a rallying cry for his campaign. Yeah, there are outliers, but the, 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 the general pattern of this is liberal musician, conservative politician, liberal musician complaining. That's what this usually looks like, and I don't think that's particularly healthy either. Is there a fair use solution here? I don't think so. I mean, I think... Um, I wouldn't call it fair use. I think fair use has come to focus on transformativeness as a very important analysis. I don't see transformativeness here. What I see is a close to related thing, which is there's an enormous First Amendment interest in politicians being able to make political statements using songs that they think stand for the values that they want to project. I would love some politician, maybe this is just a dream, but I would love some politician to stand up and to make a principled argument for why they should be able to communicate to the American public in the way that they wish to communicate. That, you know, democracy is more important than some artist's ego. That's Professor Chris Sprigman of NYU Law School. In the early days of presidential campaign music, the message was most important. Words were rewritten to form contrafacta, and a simple jingle could be the difference between being remembered or forgotten. As the modern era approached and the growth of mass media exploded, the power of celebrity and association began to influence a campaign's musical choices even more. That was certainly the case when the Reagan campaign managed to misinterpret the meaning of Born in the USA and shed light on the fact that Springsteen was, in fact, not a supporter. The modern era of American politics has been rife with this legally, socially, and politically complex issue. But what is certain is that music plays a vital role in American presidential campaigns. To help wrap up, Here's Ben Cesario. Well, I think in the old days, music was a rallying cry in, in political campaigns. It was a way to stir up people when the candidate came to town. It was a way to, you know, instill a, a patriotic feeling. There's a long history of jingles being written for major campaigns. But I think that in more recent decades, mirroring the advertising industry in, in a lot of ways, the use of jingles has kind of turned to the use of familiar pop songs and what a song can represent to people and the associations that they have with with the song or or even with the artist who sings it i think a lot of times it's just the feeling that it stirs up in people and the memories of where they were when they heard it and the pleasure and the feeling and the emotions that the song can conjure up. Those musically entwined memories are powerful tools when it comes time to vote, meaning the struggle between politicians and music creators 
over who has the right to use their music when and where will continue on both sides of the aisle for the foreseeable future. The song we're listening to right now is Feel the Burn by Marcus Roberts. That's all the time we have for today's show. An enormous thank you to our guests Ben Cesario, Joel Schoenfeld, and Chris Sprigman. On the next episode of Musonomics, law, regulation, and the venerable tradition of American songwriting with Clara Kim from ASCAP and John Seabrook of The New Yorker on what the streaming industry is doing to songwriters. Literally, we would sit there and look at YouTube and look at 100 million, 200 million hits, and they still didn't have a check. So if the songwriters can't afford to make a living, then where are the songs going to come from? You won't want to miss it. The Musonomics podcast is a production of Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. The Musonomics podcast is produced at NYU Steinhardt, by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor, with help from Judy Choi, Natalia Karavasili, and Samantha Tubner. And special thanks this episode to Nathaniel Picard-Busky and Jerry Chazen. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>